Hey everyone, boy do I have an exciting episode for you today. I was psyched when I heard that I got to interview Brian Aspinall, that he agreed to come on this show, um, and he did not disappoint. Boy, we talked about a bunch of different things, but when I look back at it, because Brian, right, Brian is going to say what Brian wants to say, and that's the beauty of it. He even says in one of the one of the parts of this episode that he's finally living the life that he wants to live. And how important and meaningful is that? You know, he talks about a lot of things, but learning how it has to be about pursuing your passion. And, and far too often in education, we're focusing on the weaknesses and trying to shore those up instead of improving upon the strengths. Because when students get out of school, right, they're eventually going to be focusing on their strengths. They're not going to their weaknesses, but they're going to their strengths. So if we can improve their strengths while they're here, Boy, what a bonus that is and how much better we're preparing them for life once they get out of there. And and as our conversation went on, you know, Brian hit on a couple real important things. One, why are we always preparing students for more school instead of life? Just let that question sink in for a second to think about how we might want to look at changing education. And another one is the idea of fear being the common thread that's holding us back from changing at all levels. And one of the best parts of Brian, because he's accomplished so much in his life in the classroom, outside of the classroom, in education, and even outside of education, if you check out his YouTube channel on building and flipping houses, you have to leave your ego at the door. For somebody like Brian to say that and focus on the idea of being humble, Boy, that's a powerful message to all of us. But I'm giving away the whole episode here. I don't want to give away too much. This is a great conversation. Thanks for tuning in. You are not going to want to miss this. I know it's cliche, but our actions speak louder than words. And we have to remember that every person, not student, not staff, every person in our school and community knows something we don't. And if we recognize that everybody is an expert in some capacity, We remove all hierarchies, we remove equity layers, and we build a community of risk-taking, a community of love, a community of trust where people want to do better for themselves, want to do better for their peers, their colleagues, and want to do better for their community. Dr. Chris Jones here, and welcome to Seeing to Lead, a show designed to help leaders increase their ability to effectively support, engage, and empower their staff through intentional practices so that they create an environment where everyone reaches their greatest level of success. On Seeing to Lead, communication rules the day as we hear voices from both teachers and leaders in an effort to examine perspectives, highlight misunderstandings, and provide steps to ultimately bridge the gap between what teachers need and provide through thoughtful dialogue. This show is about amplifying voices, creating understanding, and providing information to help everyone continually improve. I want to personally thank you for taking the time. Now, let's get to getting better. Brian Aspinall is the CEO and publisher of Codebreaker Inc., who uh, helps people publish books, Um, improve their leadership and provide different professional development opportunities and speakers for anybody in just about any area of leadership that's looking to improve so that they can better serve those they lead. Uh, Personally, 
And this is the reason I'm not reading a biography about Brian is because he does it all. He's like the prince of everything. And uh, his friendship that I've been lucky enough to make recently uh, means a lot to me. He's he's published my book personally, and I know he's been involved with a lot of other individuals who I know are that run in the same circles. He's got a ton to say, all good information, and is really somebody dedicated to lifting others up and helping others change this big thing we call education so that mm. it better serves students and teachers alike. Brian, thanks for being on the podcast today. It means a ton to me. Welcome. The pleasure is all mine. That was a great bio, by the way. Great read off the cuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll have, to, we'll have to maybe translate that and send the it out to you. Darkness. The yeah. of darkness, right? <laughs> 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 so... Um, even though I did the even though I did the bio and all that and and you know talked a little bit about that from a personal level, just for the listener's sake, why don't you why don't you round it out a little bit? Tell us how you got to where you are now and and what you're involved in. Oh man. Flare your calendar. This is going to be a long one. <laughs> <laughs> this is my 18th year in education. I spent 12, 13 years in what we call elementary school. Those are K-8 schools here in the beautiful province of Ontario, Canada. And for the last five or six years, I've been in the higher ed space teaching at four different faculties of ed uh, at different campuses across the province of Ontario. The Coles Notes version, I was a self-taught coder in high school in the 90s, which led me to study computer science at the university. When I went back to teacher's college and landed a teaching job, we teach to our strengths. Computer science was mine naturally. I saw the math integration. A, a third of my undergrad is math. Let's be real. So integrating coding and computational thinking before it was a thing, and I'm using the air quotes because it's been around for decades. It's just been really hot in the last 15 years. Uh, as a result, you know, people start tapping you on the shoulder. Like, you know, it takes a long time to write curriculum. How have you been doing computer science in seventh grade for so long? And that led me to, you know, writing my own book and literally being poached by the local university saying, why don't you come and write a course for us? And then I, I never left. So lucky for me, touch wood, those courses I teach are online. So I am able to travel and do consulting work all over the world, all over uh, North America. We're heading to Orlando, Florida here in a couple of weeks. That's awesome. And I, I do follow the different places you're going and things like that. And all the things that you're doing to help other people. What I what I'm really interested in though is you've got this this code breaker, right? This whole idea of education needs to change, and we can't just sit around and wait for it to change. We have to go and seek out people who are actively looking to make it change or make a change. So, in that area, I because I guess that's an area you're passionate about. But what specifically are you passionate about? as you move forward through this this part of your career? You know, if you had asked me five years ago if I'd ever resign uh, and give up my classroom, I, I would have laughed in your face. You know, here Canadian teachers get paid very well and best benefits and summers off and, you know, all of those perks that, that come with the wonderful job. But also, if you got to say to me, hey, Brian, would you like to do your favorite coding lesson every day across the globe, I would say, heck yes. And that's ultimately what happened. You know, the hour of code movement around 2007, 2008 made big waves. And I grabbed my surfboard and I decided to join the surfing team and, and ride out that wave. 
Now, having said all that, on uh, March 13th, 2020, the day the world stopped, that's the day the NBA shut down. No, sorry, it was March 12th. But yeah, no, it was March, whatever. March 13th. It was March 12th. Yes, Friday the 13th was D-Day. I was scheduled <laughs> to be... <laughs> I was scheduled to be a morning keynote speaker at McCall here in Detroit, Michigan, the Michigan Association of Computer Users and Learning statewide conference. And that never happened. They said, you need to go home. You're Canadian and they're about to close the borders. And I'm like, what are you talking about? The NBA shut down. I just thought COVID was, what is this? And uh, my wife and I woke up on the Saturday, March 14th. And I went, I think we just lost $120,000 in consulting for the foreseeable future. What the heck are we going to do? Now, at the time, she was still an educator. My wife has since resigned from teaching as well. She works with Codebreaker Inc. Uh, but she was only teaching halftime. I was in higher ed at the time, but that wasn't enough to really pay the bills. And it got a little bit scary for anybody that was sort of doing the circuit at that time. And it dawned on me that I had already published three books at that point, And I had been through that process and I've been an entrepreneur my whole life, self-proclaimed entrepreneur. I was the Pablo Escobar of laptops in high school. I would buy them off eBay <laughs> and then fix them. And I was dealing them to students on campus and it helped pay for my tuition. That was in the late 1990s before the Y2K bug took us out. <laughs> so in that first week of March, second week of March, I thought, you know what? Everybody's home for the next six months. I'm going to reach out to every school leader and every district leader that I've met on my journey because they all have amazing stories to tell. And that's when Codebreaker Publishing really, really turned itself on. It was a big, big, big pivot and an opportunity to leverage the social media that I have built over the last 10 years, our large 100 plus 100,000 followers across all of our channels to really tell the stories that really need to be heard. I want to tell a story about rural Iowa a town of 1,500 people that has a school that is leading the state in computer science education. And the messaging around, just because you come from a small town doesn't mean you don't stand a chance. We live in the era of connectivity. I myself went to a high school with 12 people in my graduating class. I think I, I, think I turned out okay. And I really want to inspire our young people that uh, they can too. And maybe computer science isn't for you, but like broccoli, you don't know if you like it until you try it. And we are not currently exposing enough of our students to it. So we've got our two sort of umbrellas. We've got our consulting and we've got our publishing where we're really trying to amplify the stories uh, that really, really need to be heard from that ground level across North America and beyond. You know, a humble brag, I've been to Hawaii for work twice and I watched them participate in lava flow drills. I, I never experienced something like that being from Ontario, Canada. So my own professional learning has really gone through the roof since I made the decision to actually leave my classroom. You know, it's funny that you say that and you talk about your own professional learning. And that's not a humble brag. That that speaks to, you know, how far you're willing to go and the, and the different places that you're you're willing to go. Because I love I love that Iowa story. But you talk about your learning went through the roof through traveling. And a lot of people don't realize that. A lot of people think that if they go to talk to somebody or go to do something that it's they're not going to learn from it. They're they're the ones that are going to be dispensing so to speak that that knowledge. How do we convince teachers or support teachers in the idea that they need to get out of their classroom 
at one level to see other people. And I think they, they're already pretty much on that. So that's more the support people piece. How do we convince them that when they have that difficult class of students, when they have the, the class that's not going the way it should be, that that's a moment for them to learn instead of still trying to dispense all that knowledge or to teach those kids and get them in line, how do they use that as a moment to learn that maybe there's a better way for me to teach this? Maybe the kids have something that I need to get. How can we do that as leaders? You know, there's, we, we collectively education, we exist in a silo. We're in our classroom silo, silo. we're in our school community silo, we're in our family of school silo, we're in our district silo, and then we're in our geographic regional silo. And speaking just from the province of Ontario, we get directives from the ministry at the top that get passed down to our superintendent and directors who then interpret the messaging, who then deliver it to their administrators, who then interpret the messaging, who then deliver it to the ground level to their staff, who then interpret the messaging, who then go about teaching the kids in the classroom. So a lot gets lost in translation. As you know, playing telephone, sitting around a campfire as a kid, whispering into ears, the whole message gets changed as it passes each uh, level of command. I love saying that, you know, those in education who live in isolation have chosen to do so. It is so easy to be connected in this day and age. And social media, I think, is the number one starting point Twitter is by far the biggest, most impactful social media platform for education. In fact, I read a stat that the majority of Twitter users, I think, are now educators. Don't quote me on that. But it's a massive, massive, massive network. Heaven forbid, touch wood, if I ever had to be, if I was ever in a car accident and I needed to plan, say, two weeks of lesson plans, I get on Twitter and say, hey, I teach seventh grade. I need this for number sense. This for, can you help me out? Boom. My, my day book is planned for the foreseeable future. There comes a few caveats, though, with social media. We love sharing success stories, and that quite often is one or two kids doing really cool things while 27 kids off camera are just screwing around in the back of the room, myself included. That happens in my classroom as, as well. But take it with a grain of salt. We look at social media as a window into other people's classrooms, and that might lead us to a blog post, and that might lead us to another district's website where we can read about their directives, their initiatives, and what's happening there. And it gives us a little bit of insight. I really started looking beyond Ontario when I learned that British Columbia, our most Western province in Canada, was implementing a coding strand about six or seven years ago. They were the first in our country to do it, so I knew they were going to set the bar. Well, just because I don't teach the curriculum that's taught in British Columbia, from an equity lens as a country, my students are fearing, feeling a disservice for not getting what they're getting in British Columbia. And that's just from putting myself out there, connecting with people, because I truly want to just do better and, and learn more every single day. And I don't want to pick on staff meetings, Mr. Jones, because I'm sure yours are wicked and stellar, but there's a <laughs> lot more I can get in 45 minutes on Twitter if I'm following the right people. It doesn't take much to get on Twitter and say, hey, third grade teacher from Minnesota, who should I connect with? You're going to get hundreds of replies. Yeah. And you know, it's funny that you mentioned staff meetings because I was just in front of my staff meeting the other day <laughs> and I, I do them a little different, but I don't do them like Twitter. That's for sure. And I had said to them, so we, we do this thing or I do this thing. It's a, it's a compilation of all the pictures that staff members take during the course of the day, during the course of the week, I put them into a video at the end of the week. They go on my newsletter each week and I call it our story because it's a glimpse into our school and what's going on and things like that. And so I was encouraging staff at the beginning of the year 
to say, hey, remember to, you know, send me pictures and things like that or, or post them on Twitter because then they pick up. And I, I thought about it and I looked and not everybody's on Twitter. Mm. And it, it was just so natural to me to say that. And then, I, you know, I pivoted and said, hey, you know, send me your pictures. I'll make sure they get out, which teachers have done. However, I thought about doing a staff meeting where I'll say, okay, look, in our learning and reflection portion of the staff meeting this month, we're going to do this social media thing. And what that's going to play out like getting people to actually go on social media, because that's uncomfortable for some people. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people have consciously made the decision not to do that. I really liked what you said about everybody wants to do better. And I I firmly believe that If if, if people could do better, they would. But I don't think everybody always wants to learn. And so I'd love to talk to you about that a little bit. How do we encourage people to to learn something new, to be that, to have that curiosity, to go out and search things down. My entrepreneurial brain is going a mile a minute because my wife and I have a YouTube channel. And the reason we do that is that we call it our portfolio of learning. I'm trying to model it as an educator. So could you imagine taking your weekly videos and firing them up onto YouTube? You don't have to be on Twitter to watch them. Could you imagine monetizing your channel and then using the funds towards school supplies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all your parents are going to want to watch that content on a weekly basis and you're going to build your subscriptions. That's my, what I would <laughs> My head just exploded because, <laughs> because they go in, they go in my newsletter and uh, they do go on YouTube because I have a YouTube channel. There you but go. I, but I'm missing a massive, and I even made a little foray into TikTok recently, but we, we won't talk about that though. So that's great because I, you know, like I, I was talking about the videos. I do put them on YouTube and, um, I, you said a word though, because I, I've taken a little foray into TikTok, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. Maybe if I'm not too embarrassed. Well, I put them on YouTube, but you said a, a very important word, monetize. Now I have a YouTube channel that I put all my videos on because I do weekly video messages to the community and everything that I know nothing about monetizing. So are there resources out there? And this is just me. Maybe I should be a little more curious upon reflection. Are there resources out there about how I could show people how to do that or how that would work so that then I could model that for teachers? Yeah, I would go ask the kids in your fifth grade classroom. Because <laughs> they're, mon- they're monetizing yeah. their Minecraft and their Twitch content already. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All kidding aside, there are people on YouTube that make money doing YouTube tutorials. So <laughs> think about that for a second. Yeah. Plenty of ways to to explore how to do that. I call YouTube that free YouTuber YouTuberversity, YouTube University. It's one of a bajillion resources that I think all of our our young people and our adult learners should be exploring too. The higher ed courses that I teach, the integration of information and computer technology, they're really challenging because they get rewritten every five years. And as the course writer, I have to make very, very difficult predictions because technology changes so quickly, what is sustainable for five years? What in my course five years from now are people going to be like, why am I still talking about the smart board? Because that happened in the last revision, right? We're still talking about the smart board or Promethean boards. Um, and I think a big part of my messaging and a big part of that course is in a world that changes overnight, the only strategy guaranteed to fail is not trying something new. Absolutely. And you know, some of the things that you said just really resonate with me. And it, it started when you start talking about that small, that small school in Iowa, the small school that you came from. I think of one of the reasons that I moved to the school that I, I lead now 
from a smaller school. I moved to a school twice the size because we were able to do innovative things at a smaller school, but I didn't ever really see a lot of successful innovation happening at larger schools. And so I was curious about that. So I want to dig in on that. But taking into account the world continually changes and we have to really make a strong effort to keep up with it. In your world or what you'd like to see, what should school look like then? What should education, it could be in a school building, it cannot be in a school building. What should school look like for teachers and students today to be effective? I'll leave physicalness out of it. And I'll just sort of speak to um, some of the logistical constraints that we have. I think since the beginning of schooling, time has been the biggest constant. You know, in elementary school, we get 40 to 60 minutes of math, then there's a bell, then it's French, then there's a bell, then it's art, then there's a bell. And what happens through that model is we fail to see education as a constant. That means not every student is receiving the same quality education because we all process differently. There was a time, especially in math class, where speed and accuracy were used to define good math students. And I really blame standardized testing for that that outlook. But we recognize that we process at such different speeds and problem solving requires mistakes, you know. So there's this context of in a testing environment, mistakes are bad. But then when the test is over, I want you to take a risk and go and try new things. So in my perfect world, time is thrown out the window as are grades, because if we're really talking about differentiation and really looking at each individual learner, then no two people can really have what we call the same A. I know that A-letter grades are set by standards of government governing bodies, but we lose on the equity level when some kids might just do their very best and that's their A. Particularly here in Ontario, when we start streaming kids as they get older, it also shows how meaningless those grades actually are. Speaking from a phys ed teacher, I used to give bonus marks to kids who claim came to class prepared with a change of clothes. But I never did that in math. I never was like, you brought your protractor set, here's five points. Why was it okay for me to do that in gym class? What message was I sending about the importance of math or lack of importance about physical education? And also what message was I sending about, you know, grades in general? I think math phobia stems from, stem, that's a good pun, stems from the <laughs> time, uh, time testing environments where we say mistakes are bad in this context. But when the test is over, I want you to go ahead and I want you to try new things. So in, in a perfect world, learning is about exploring your passion projects. That's what I've done my entire life, being computer science. I know what it's done for me. Far too often, we focus on kids' weaknesses at school when they're going to pursue their strengths in life. I recognize trying to create young, well-rounded individuals, but the reality is we can get better in some of the areas we're weak, but if we're strong in certain areas, why can't we grow those exponentially so that we can go out and solve the problems of tomorrow that we don't yet know our problems using tools that our young people are going to invent. So to answer your question, because I'm not sure that I did, I would ditch time, I would ditch bells, I would ditch nine to three because, you know, we don't work on the factory, factory model anymore. Kids are doing as much learning in the informal space after school, in after school clubs and after school workshops, and in all the stuff they're exploring online on their own time anyway. Imagine being able to pull a curriculum from what they're doing at home rather than trying to shove school curriculum in their face during the school day. That'd be crazy. And just from a person, my personal experience with my kids, 
like the things they're interested in. And when they come and talk to me about it, some of them I'm like, what, where did you read that? And when did you find out about that? Oh, well, I was just looking through and here we go. And this is not, this is not um, on purpose, but, oh, I was looking through Twitter. And so we were talking about Twitter and learning on Twitter. They go on Twitter all the time to learn different things and follow the different people. They're huge on YouTube. Another thing you pointed out to me about, you want to learn how go to YouTube (laughs) university, but I couldn't agree more with you with the time constraints and focusing on weaknesses instead of strengths. Supporting your teachers and students seems to be a struggle. They just don't seem to be engaged. You wish they would take more responsibility for their learning and culture of the building, but they just don't seem to be empowered enough to do it. So my question is, have you checked out the book Seeing to Lead yet? It's all about creating a true educational experience where learning, growth, leadership, and community take center stage. Full of strategies and resources, Seeing to Lead is about attaining that goal by employing a model that supports, engages, and empowers all individuals to become leaders themselves. Pick up a copy today at seeingtolead.com. That's S-E-E-I-N-G-T-O-L-E-A-D.com. Remember, you don't become a leader and then decide you need to support and recognize others more than yourself. It is the moment you realize it's about supporting and recognizing others that you become a leader. Seeingtolead.com. A question I do want to dig in on, though, with you, because I, I have this argument all the time about grades. Grades don't tell us anything because A's are different. So people go to standards-based grading because it's still too scary to get away from the grades. What can we do as leaders for the teachers in our building and for the students in our building to move away from that meaningless letter grade that goes up if you bring in a can of soup for the soup drive to maybe something even more meaningful than standards-based grading? The last school that I worked at, we spent four years going gradeless, quote-unquote. In the first year, we started in grade 7-8. So this is a JK to uh, grade 8 school in Ontario. So our kids spend 10 years in that building from JK to senior kindergarten and then one through eight. In the first year, we quit doing it in grade seven, eight. That was, that was my decision. And I had three colleagues. We had four grade seven and eight classrooms. We decided there will be no grades. For those teachers that were uncomfortable with it, they had a mark book. They had a grade book. We just stopped putting numbers on kids' work, just feedback. In my 15 years, the, the, the Markbook police have never knocked on my door asking for it. I've done three teacher performance appraisals without a Markbook, and I passed them with, with glory, glorifying you know, fireworks. But that's a topic for another day. What we noticed was in the first year, it was an utter train wreck for a few reasons. Number one, our kids in grade eight had spent nine years with grades, and then we took them away. And I was like, what? Number two... We stream our kids in grade nine. So we've now taken grades away from eighth graders who had to make decisions about high school based on marks. That didn't work quite well. Having a conversation with our administrator, having a conversation as a school community, we decided in year two, the whole school is going to do it. And it's such a simple premise, but imagine never telling a second grade student they're a C in math. Maybe they won't hate math. It's not that hard of a concept to really wrap your head around. Fast forward to year five. Our first cohort was at the end of grade 12 now, leading the high school. When the high school came to do their, their feeder school pitch, because we have a bunch of family of schools that feed to the one high, or different high schools, 
We recognized they were all our former students. And we said to the guidance counselor, is this strategic? Are you trying to persuade our students by bringing in former students? She hadn't a clue that those kids had come from our school. All she had said was, these are the leaders of our school. These are the problem solvers of our school. These are the kids that demonstrate resiliency and initiative and take accountability and want to learn on their own. And that was the biggest piece of soft anecdotal data that we had. They said kids from other feeder schools, if an iPad was dead, the kid would throw the iPad around and sit there for 75 minutes and go, well, the technology didn't work and you didn't tell me what to do because they were used to the spoon-fed schooling environment and our kids were like, I'm going to take your iPad, I'm going to fix your iPad, I'm going to code an app for your iPad and you're going to get to work. What we recognized at our own school level by year four, year five, not a single student was saying, what did I get? The verbiage became, can I try this? And that changed everything. The less we talked about grades, the less we taught to the test in terms of standardized testing, the better our scores got. Our truancy went down. Kids were coming to school on snow days. This was before the era of pandemic world, of course. Absentees went down. Behaviors went down. Morale went up. And here's something we don't often consider. You know how much money we saved on substitute teachers that year because staff wanted to be at school? Consider that. Our printing budget went down because we're integrating technology, saving a ton of cash there. And our substitute teacher budget went down because staff weren't taking their sick days. Kids wanted to be there. It took everybody, including parents, to be on board uh, for this, with this. We did get some pushback from a superintendent that said, well, how are you preparing kids for high school? And that became another conversation. And kudos to my administrator at the time. Why are we always using school as preparation for more school? Number one. Number two, kudos to my administrator who looked the superintendent right in the eye and said, oh, how's high school getting ready for our kids? Because that's not how we do business down here. And our kids are going to go and change the world. If you want them to sit quietly and take notes for 75 minutes, you're going to teach that skill in grade nine. And you're going to watch them all skip school, unlike what they're doing here. And that was a big moment, big moment for like the entire district. Fast forward, our ninth grade and our 10th grade teachers at the high school stopped giving grades. Think about that. That's huge change. That's massive. That's a massive change because that's usually the the argument or the story that you hear at the high school, right? You hear that, well, we need grades because we have to we have to rank the kids because colleges want the grades. I don't know if that how that plays in Canada or if it's different in Canada. But no, it's not. It's the same. Yeah. But hasn't the pandemic completely disrupted higher ed? Like our, I'm done with that narrative at this point. If higher ed continues to do lecture style. Uh, based on a point system coming off of a Zoom world, forget that. Don't go to university. <laughs> YouTube well, University. Yeah. <laughs> you know what's <laughs> funny? You know, we should ask YouTube to sponsor the podcast. The amount of times we're plugging them. Um, there's that monetized thing. But yeah. no, I see, I'm I'm a quick learner, Brian. I'm a quick learner. I um, you know, universities are are starting to hurt. And, and noticeably so in the United States, because one, they're they're too expensive. Uh, for what you get. And two, because students are looking at different avenues towards what they want to do. You know, it's not about college and career readiness. I always say it's about career readiness because some careers require college, some don't. And they can be successful in either side of that. As 
As a matter of fact, what we're noticing, a big shift we're noticing that they're having to, to catch up on is with our vocational technical schools. So we have our college prep schools because of that big push where they moved all the vocational pieces out of your high schools. We no longer had comprehensive high schools. And so now you have schools that just focused on vocational stuff. So your, your metal work, your plumbing, your carpentry, stuff like that. And when I was growing up, as this vocational movement really started to take hold and take root, it was the people wearing work boots and jeans and seen as that, right? Seen as lesser academic, where the traditional academic college path wasn't right for them. And what we've noticed is there's been a massive shift where these students that typically were gearing up to go into these college prep high schools and then go on to an institution after that even, they're now going to the vocational technical education schools. And what's occurring is because it's done on a point system, an, an archaic point system based on discipline, attendance, grades, and then an interview, an in-person interview, the folk schools are taking the students that were traditionally going to go to the academically oriented schools. And so the academically oriented schools are now getting the students that are hands-on students. They're vocational oriented students. And so it's almost setting them up for failure. So now they're, they're wrestling with that. I've got an idea. Why don't we just switch all education so that it doesn't matter where you end up going, you know, based on programming and things like that, where we can offer it to everybody. I'm with you 100%. So many of our young people are graduating with $50,000 in student loan debt that they may never recover from. And, and what are they doing? Waiting tables because, you know, what's, what's out there, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think everything, of course, is a pendulum. And so speaking from a computer science lens, the 70s and the 80s were, were really, and even some of the 90s, were really focused on hardware in computing. So we had Windows 98. We were pushing Pentium machines things of that nature. And then we hit the, the early 2000s and we switched the productivity suite. So now the focus becomes everybody needs to be fluent in, in Microsoft, PowerPoint, Microsoft Word, Publisher 98, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the software movement kind of saturates. In comes Steve Jobs and he creates what's called the iPod Touch. And we're back into this hardware era again in the late 2000s. Well, that starts to saturate. There was, there's an app for everything was the joke we all said for three years straight. And then we went back into the software era of just that. We saw Angry Birds become a billion dollar empire because of one simple game, which by the way, was the 46th or 47th game Rovio made. You want to talk about defining failure? They spent six years building games in mom's garage before one took off. Now it's a billion dollar empire. So I think following those pendulum swings is probably the correlation to what's happening now, where we're back into the makerspace, hands-on learning, vocational type, you know, experiences of what's happening. And we're currently, I think, in heading towards the Internet of Things era. I think we're at the end of the software, the end of the coding phase again. We're going to go back to the invention phase. I think the next billion-dollar kid is going to make something new like a fire alarm that's connected to your phone that tells your dog to get out of the house if there's smoke and tweets your grandma at the same time and, you know, saves the world through that because all everything we own is going to be connected, you know, to the internet in the next little while. I just feel like we have to step back and look at the bigger picture. We're so reactive in education. It drives me bonkers. We're always trying to put out fires and, and do damage control. We never step back and, you know, look. At the bigger picture, I'll pick on coding. It's been around in school since the 60s. 
And the first coding language was created by math teachers in the 60s to teach geometry. Only recently has the corporate world stepped in telling everybody they need to code. But that's just because Microsoft wants to sell you something. I love you, Microsoft. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not that you have any strong feelings about it. So, I mean, you you bring this up and, you know, you bring up a lot of good points and the idea of where we need to head and what education should look like. But as as leaders, can you think of any way that like people ah, listening froze. to this? So you right. talk about a lot of really good things, Brian, that, that, you know, where education should be, should be moving. And you talk about the whole back and forth and the pendulum shift. So how, how do leaders get teachers to realize this and not get caught up in their silos to push themselves out there and to look at the horizon and to take that step? Because you talked about verbiage in your school when you went gradeless. It takes action to bring the verbiage forward. You can't start with the verbiage and expect it to happen. It's, I'm a firm believer you got to take that step out there first so that it actually does change the verbiage. What are your thoughts on that? I love that you use the word horizon. And I think about this a lot recently. Maybe it's because I'm getting older now. I don't know. But, you know, what did our planet look like a thousand years ago? We were still exploring. And at the root of human nature, we are explorers. What is this planet going to look like a thousand years from now. Hate him or don't, Elon Musk is a pioneer and we are beginning to explore the beyond out of this planet and things are going to change. And if we don't change in education, we're doing the human species a disservice with regards to progression and with regards to evolution. I say it all the time in the world that changes overnight, the only strategy guaranteed to fail is not trying something new. Your question was, how do we get the buy-in from our staff? And I'm speaking solely from my experience. And my experience is uh, teaching 12, 13 years in six schools, teaching higher ed to four campuses, to thousands of teachers, and interacting with tens of thousands of kids and dozens of schools all over North America. And the big common piece is fear. And it's fear at every level. It's fear at the kid level, whether it's grades, whether it's detention, whether it's behavior. It's fear at the teacher level. My my snoopervisor, as Dr. Matt Joseph likes to say, my, my snoopervisor is going to catch me doing something wrong. Heaven forbid I put on a 20-minute YouTube video on a Friday afternoon. There's fear there. There's fear of parents. And then the administrator's afraid of test scores and how that reflects on them and up and up. And the whole thing is based on fear, in my honest opinion. And until we make great strides to alleviate that, how can we expect there to be any change? I always say at the kid level, there's far too much fear, far too much risk in not getting the grade. So why would I try something new at school? That's, I, I don't have anything else to say except for wow. I, you know, we and we talked pre-show about distilling concepts down into like headlines and things like that. You just did it into one yeah. word. You, you undid the Gordian knot with just one word, fear. That's so powerful. And, and you know, people listen to this, they wonder why I'm excited to talk to you. Well, it's like the daybook, the daybook police never came to my classroom. So by about year three, I stopped writing a daybook. I'm like, this is dumb. What a waste of my planning time. You know, the mark police never came. And when it came down to writing report cards, there's concrete evidence everywhere. All I have to do is articulate a number. I don't need a running record of 
what they did every single day, you know? It's like we don't judge Sidney Crosby's ability to play hockey based on the results of one period or one game, and we don't hold it against him for his behavior in a certain shift. Truth, truth. I so look, you're saying so much. I don't I I could talk to you forever, but um I do want to get to the two questions that I ask every guest because I can't wait to hear your answers to these. Oh um, no. <laughs> that I, <laughs> I yeah, this is this is must listen podcasting right here. So the, the first of the two questions is if you weren't an educator, who, not what would you be? Who would I be? Yeah. I would be an artist. Is that what you meant? And yeah, no, that's fine. There's, there's no, Hey, I'm not grading you on this. Imagine that. Yeah. I didn't show up for a quiz here today. I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> I, um, no, it's, and it, you know, I really like the way people look at it because I've had some people look at who they are as a person now and take away everything they've gained through by being involved in education and give me an answer that way. I've had people name actual people um, that they would be, which was kind of interesting, but artists. So talk to me a little bit about artists. Artists. Um, I did. I never, I never considered myself a writer and look, we've, I've got six books in my library. I never considered myself to be an artist until I perceived art through a different lens. I think creating content for YouTube is art. I think remixing music is art. I think writing code is art. Uh, I think creating graphics is art. And I think we're all artists, you know, in a world where content creation is so heavily focused, everything we create is artistic in some form and it's a form of expression. Uh, and it really speaks to our core. Here's, here's an example. I got my first tattoo on my back after about my, seventh year in the classroom and I was fearful of going camping with my eighth grade students at our year-end field trip because I meant taking my shirt off to go swimming in the lake and then it was like who told me that I can't have that well now I'm friggin' covered in them now I'm like I don't give a crap <laughs> every single one tells a story and you know this is who I am and be proud of that so I'm gonna go back to your question and your question was if you weren't you who would you be I would be me to my my fullest self. And I have not been me to my fullest self for 40 years. I just turned 41. And for the last year, I finally feel like I'm living me without fear, uh, without anxiety, without worry about what other people think, without worry about, you know, cancel culture. It's, it's here and it rears its ugly head. And please, please disagree with me. Cause if you agreed with me, the world would be boring, but you don't have to hate me if you disagree with my opinions. <laughs> oh, if, if we could get everybody to understand that, that you can disagree yeah. with somebody and not hate them as a person. Yeah. If we all agreed, we'd be bored out of our minds. Oh, I think that's an Anthony Bourdain quote, by the way. Who, who would ever want to live in a world where everybody just agreed? Not to mention You'd never learn right. anything. Just like if you never made mistakes, you'd never learn anything. Yeah. But so Yeah, we I mean we only we only learn to walk by falling down. Right. And right. we're trying to avoid falling down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's more like it. I um so I mean especially the the piece you just gave from your last answer and everything you've talked about here today, what's the most important piece of advice you would like to leave leaders with? as they work to better support, engage, and empower those they serve? You know, there was a time in my life where 
I, I try to I try to carry my personality through a, a very, very humble lens. I admittedly know that I've worked very hard to get to where I am, but I know that luck plays a small role in that. And for for a while, I carried a lot of ego. And maybe it was my age, maybe it was where I was in my own experience of perspective of the world. But, you know, there was a time where I seemed to be the only one in North America doing coding and, and, and I couldn't sit still. I was being pulled in 92 different directions, you know, around 2008, 2009. So I held myself in very, very high regard. And I say that because I am very fortunate to be able to visit schools all across the world on a regular basis. And what I've learned doing that is I can feel the culture of the building the second I walk in the front door. I've been to enough schools now to know. And the difference is if I walk in and it already feels like I'm walking on eggshells, there is far too much ego in that front office. And it happens so, so often. If I walk into a school and there's kids laughing right in the front foyer, I'm like, this is an administrator that likes to have a good time and I'm going to enjoy myself at this school. I bet people really enjoy coming to work in this building. I know it's cliche, but our actions speak louder than words. And we have to remember that every person, not student, not staff, Every person in our school and community knows something we don't. And if we recognize that everybody is an expert in some capacity, we remove all hierarchies, we remove equity layers, and we build a community of risk-taking, a community of love, a community of trust where people want to do better for themselves, want to do better for their peers, their colleagues, and want to do better for their community. Ego is a tough one for a lot of us to put aside in order to get into an office leadership role, you have to do a lot of accolades and a lot of schooling. And sometimes that carries a lot of self-worth. And there's that's okay. Just recognize it. Check yourself at the door uh, and be humble about it. You know, you did get to where you are because of how hard you worked. Now let's try and help the next person in line, those that are coming up, starting with the five-year-olds at the floor in the kindergarten room. Brian. Thank you so much for everything you've said here today. I really, I mean, you you uh, exceeded my expectations and my expectations were pretty high for having our conversation. If people want to well, get in I'm touch with you. Oh, that, <clears throat> pleasure was mine. The If people want to get in touch with you, because first of all, I don't know how people wouldn't want to get in touch with you, but um, what's the best <laughs> way? Do not DM me. <laughs> <laughs> I say that I say that as a humble brag. The DMs when you've got that many followers, it's mind-boggling the asks that people have that you've never met. But that's a story for another day. BrianAspinall.com is my blog. MrAspinall.com is my CV resume. I'm an open book. You can Google me. Uh, you find my email address if you want. Follow me on Twitter at MrAspinall. Follow me on Instagram at MrAspinall. And I'd love to subscribe if you want to see what we do with real estate on YouTube because I am learning a lot about electrical. <laughs> <laughs> I do and have to not do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes, you know, especially with electrical, it's more important to know not what not to do than what to do. If I burn the house down, insurance is going to be like, we watched you install it wrong on YouTube. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Portfolio of learning. I made a mistake. Yeah, Portfolio yeah. of learning. Yeah. Your YouTube, your YouTube channel is fun to watch. I I do have to say that. But well, hey, um, <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha
really uh that's a passion project in itself oh man yeah yeah it is <laughs> but uh but seriously uh thank you i'm i'm so grateful that uh you agreed to come on here and i, I you know i hope to have you on again sometime soon i look forward to it i look forward to visiting your school in person <laughs> absolutely well that's a wrap but not the end Next step, be sure to take action on something you heard here today. Thanks for listening to the Scene to Lead podcast. If you'd like to connect for any reason, email me at drchrissj at gmail.com or catch me on Twitter at Dr. C.S. Jones. If you've gotten any value from the Scene to Lead podcast, you can help me and other leaders create a world-class environment through a teacher-centric approach by subscribing to the show, leaving an honest rating and review, and sharing this episode on social media with your most valuable takeaway. Learn more at drcsjones.blog. Continue to improve and go have a successful week. Thank you.